how about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello, and welcome back to the Unwasted podcast, where we talk with folks working to make positive changes that help build a less wasteful world. I think one of the saddest and most frustrating ironies of food waste in the U.S. is that while we waste close to 40% of our food supply every year, one in seven Americans struggles with hunger or food insecurity. And a huge part of the effort to address this disparity is our nation's network of food banks. Today's guest has a wealth of knowledge about food insecurity in America, how food banks can help address the problem, and how all of us can be a part of the solution. She's the CEO of Oregon Food Bank, and I'm truly honored to have her with us today. Susanna Morgan. Morgan, welcome to the podcast. So glad to be with you. It's a real honor to have you here. As I said, I think, you know, we're recording this in late April 2020 and COVID-19 is here. It's a reality. And I think many of us have seen pretty powerful images of really long lines at food banks across the country, parking lots full, you know, with so many folks unemployed, I think our network of food banks is being used, but perhaps tested or stressed in ways never before seen. And so I just would love to start just grounding us in this moment. What is it like to work at a food bank in 2020 during COVID-19? Um, So this is my 24th year in food banking. I have worked in and around food banks in San Francisco, Boston, Alaska, and now Oregon for seven and a half years. And this is the highest level of need for food assistance I have ever seen. Wow. So... For me, the first two weeks of the stay home order, which were concurrent in, uh, along the West Coast, um, was uh, I was in a constant state of terror that we would fail our community, that we would not have enough food, that we would, um, uh, we would not be able to keep an equity lens and, a, and uh, uh, our, our goal of trying to work on the root cause of hunger equally centered as we were trying to shore that our neighbors had food to feed themselves and their families today. Um, and so the, it was it was sort of like watching a tsunami come at you, know that it was coming and know that it was your job to figure out how to help people get through that, um, uh, that situation. And we've seen the need increase every week. Um, it's hard to get accurate data because the same people are feeding us data or the people who are, are handing out food. Um, but uh, we've probably gone from serving one in five people in Oregon to closer to one in three. Wow. Um, uh, the increase is something between 50 and 70% more people asking for food assistance. So this, we all are overusing the word unprecedented, but yes. this is really where we are. And the best comparisons go back 100 years to the Great Depression and the 1930s. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely guilty of using the word unprecedented as well. That That's truly, that's that's mind-blowing. So uh, unprecedented levels of demand, to overuse that word again. Um, you know, you mentioned being worried about supplies. You know, what sorts of uh, sourcing challenges has this pandemic presented for you? Well, I think that the the first and biggest um, challenge is just the the scale, the volume of um, of need, and trying to make sure that every corner of our state, and we serve one county in Washington as well, um, has has food, and that the the food distribution system is working and is strong. So, ju- so the first is just: do, will we have enough? Period. Um, then the uh, the next question is: what's Shifting in our supply chain, um, we in the Portland metro area stopped picking up at grocery stores, which is up to 20% of our usual supply, for two reasons. The first one is it was drying up anyway. The grocery stores are having trouble keeping their shelves stocked. Um, and the second reason was that particular supply of food requires a lot of handling to make sure that it is safe to distribute and our volunteer um, uh, cadre could um, needed to to shrink dramatically in order to maintain social distancing. Yeah. So we usually run volunteer shifts of 100 people. We are now running volunteer shifts of 15. 
Uh -huh. Wow. And so our, our processing, sorting, food safety capacity is way down. So that was one supply of food that dried up. And then um, we have also chosen not to accept food dry food because, again, that requires a lot of sorting. You've got to make sure that it's still reasonably good to eat and that it's not been recalled and all of those things. Um, and so for, for processing capacity, we needed to, um, to, to move away from that. And um, the single biggest national food drive, which is the National Letter Carriers Food Drive, happens the week of Mother's Day, um, has been canceled. So that is just in Oregon, one million pounds of food that will not come into our system. Across the country, it must be hundreds of millions of pounds of food that will not come into our system. So on the one hand, we have food drying up from uh, grocery stores and from food drives. And on the other hand, we have new donors coming to us who serve the um, the restaurant industry, um, which has not generally been a great source of donations for us because it's not those quantities usually, but with restaurants shut down uh, all across the country and up and down the West Coast, um, there's excess supply. And with exports changing, um, uh, there's ex excess supply. So we've also seen this opportunity to create new relationships inside the food industry um, and um, access food in, in new ways and from new partners. Awesome. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. I think a lot of us had seen the images of bare shelves in stores, but a kind of hidden consequence of that is what you said, that suddenly these stores that used to have huge surpluses don't have any. You know, They're actually having a deficit of food in their supply chain. So that in turn affects folks that are downstream like you. And that the restaurant angle is particularly interesting too, that suddenly yeah, all this food that used to go to food service applications is now suddenly at risk of going to waste, which is just like an unprecedented, uh, there it is again. <laughs> It's, just, it's a totally, it's a totally new challenge. I mean, we're we're encountering that at Imperfect as well. That suddenly we have folks like we had um, this company that used to supply an airline with uh, snacks like those cheese and cracker trays, and they had forty thousand units. They're like, we can't do anything with these. Can you take them? And you know, that's we probably never would have had that conversation, you know, three months ago. So total new terrain here, I think, for all of us in terms of where is food going, where is there not food, and. But it sounds like there's there are some opportunities here. Like you're saying that there is there are new sources to adapt to. Well, um, let's talk milk, for instance. Yeah. Right? We're um, seeing in some national news, like the New York Times, about um, dumping of milk, and um, as usual, the story is complicated behind that. Um, the one of the pieces of history there is that um, we, as a country, we're an oversupply of milk. And, and an industry will adjust to oversupply, right? People will stop being dairies or they will um, uh, sell their milk cows for beef. Um, uh, that, that will shift. But it takes years for those market decisions to come into place. So we came into this crisis in an oversupply of milk. And... Um, I have since learned that more than a third of our national milk supply goes to school lunches yep. and school breakfasts. Um, and with schools shut down around the country, there's this huge market that is not existing for milk right now. Um, so it's just sort of fascinating. So we are finding ourselves um, being able to um, uh, acquire dairy in ways that we have never been able to do because the um, because of of um, both oversupply, but even more because of just supply chain interruptions in um, this current situation. Hmm, that's fascinating. Yeah, my, my colleague Robin, who works in our organic sourcing, is always fond of saying every challenge presents an opportunity. And it sounds like, yeah, all these disruptions are, there are quite literally very disruptive, but there is an opportunity in all of them. Yeah, I think that, that's super that's super interesting. For folks listening who are really worried about what's going on and want to help, whether they live in Oregon or Washington or another part of the country and they want to help their local food bank, what is the best way to support a food bank right now? There are two things that people should do. One is they should write a check or better make an online donation because then no one has to process it. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, food banks all over the country are working at our our biggest stretch that we ever had, and we need undesignated funds to be able to do the thing we need to do. If we need to rent a truck, we should rent a truck. If we need to buy a pallet of eggs, then we should buy a pallet of eggs. If we need to uh, hire new warehouse workers, then we should do that. Yeah. Um, so financial donations 
all the way. Um, and then the second thing that people can do is reach out to their elected officials, their state legislators and their US um, congressional delegation and say, hunger is a serious problem right now. I am counting on you to keep it at the top of your agenda. Yeah. No specific wording, no specific act, just make sure that our elected officials don't take their eye off of this ball. Yeah, I, I think that's super important. It's uh... It's yeah, it's a big it's a big issue right now, and I, th I think we're dealing with like a plurality of crises right now. So it can be easy to lose touch with the fact that people were before this going hungry, you know, one in seven, and now it's even higher. And we can't in our own like kind of news um, snowball that we all get caught in. Sometimes we can't lose lose sight of that. I think that's really important. You know, I'd love to talk a bit about you mentioned food drives being paused, which I think is just a fascinating moment we're in right now. You know, for folks who want to support food banks, it. it can you t talk a bit about food donations? Because I've heard there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about what food banks do and don't need in terms of food. Like, how, should folks donate food at all? And if so, what types of food are helpful versus unhelpful? I would say that you should reach out to your local food bank or your, the food pantry around the corner from you and ask them specifically what they're doing because yeah. everyone has different capacities right now for food donation. Uh, although I will guarantee you that everyone would say, if you said, would you rather have a check or food? They will say a check right now. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, uh, the second thing is, is that um, uh, when it, when food donations are um, something that we are welcoming, people should prioritize what we think of as pantry staples. Um, uh, the things that you need to round out a meal around the produce. So uh, rice, uh, beans, uh, pasta, cooking oil, um, masa, yeah. <laughs> um, jasmine rice, um, that these are um, uh, the things that aren't donated in large quantities through the food industry. They aren't yeah. made, um, they don't uh, show up in a large excess supply in the food industry, but that we all need to have as part of our meals. Um, whereas we can get and are well connected for getting um, excess produce um, uh, and at the moment excess dairy. Uh, so it's those pantry staples that would really be helpful for people to, to donate when they can. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. I think, you know, I talked to uh, Matt Joswiak from Rethink Food New York City, and, mm -hmm. and he's he's working hard to source uh, restaurant food and redistribute it to folks in New York City who are hungry. And something he told me that I thought was really well said was that when you're thinking about donating food, it's not about you. It's not about you being able to get rid of whatever you have that you don't want. You have to think like, is this something that the organization and their clients are actually going to want or need? And I think when you think about it that way, it kind of flips it. Cause it's like, yeah, if you have like 10 cans of pumpkin, that's, that's fine. But do people need that? Like perhaps they would be better served with pasta or peanut butter or tuna or rice, as you said, like, yeah, you got, always got to put yourself in, in the shoes of whoever's going to end up eating it. And like, yeah, you can't just assume they'll eat whatever you have, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. I also think that, uh, I want to put this delicately, but I think that when we donate food, we do it because it feels better to us yeah. to donate the food than the money, even though the money is actually more welcome. Hmm. Um, Can you elaborate on that? Because I've heard this from several different people I've talked to at food banks across the country. Why specifically is a cash donation more empowering? Like, how is it that a food bank can make that dollar go further than, say, a food donation? Well, so imagine that your mother-in-law comes to visit and she brings you a couple of bags of groceries um, and she didn't consult with you ahead of time what the what was in those groceries. And so she doesn't know what's in your shelves already, um, what you were planning to make that week. She doesn't know that you were um, uh, recently diagnosed with a blood disease that means that you have to have a specific diet. Um, she, um, she doesn't know any of those things about you. So she's making decisions for you about what food it is that you need and want. Um, and so it's the same thing with, with um, food drives is that we do our best to yeah. put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, um, but we're doing it without information. 
Um, whereas at the food bank level, when we are our very best selves, we do regular surveys of the people who are experiencing hunger about what foods it is they would most like to receive. And then we use our purchasing dollars to get that. Um, uh, and, um, and we can get it at a truckload level, which means that we can get three times as much for your dollar as you can from Safeway. Hmm. Um, uh, and so I think that that's, um, that's sort of fundamentally it, is that it, it doesn't feel satisfying to write a check. It doesn't yeah. feel like you have actually done something, but you actually are putting your resources to the best use um, when you do that because you're allowing them to be um, turned into the, the most effective intervention. Got it. No, thank you for that explanation. That's super helpful. It sounds like a couple of things. One is just economies of scale. You as a food bank have access to larger quantities and wholesale pricing that frankly, any individual just can't like that's yes. You have access to a different type of food supply chain, which is empowering. And it sounds like the other one is, is essentially just knowledge and empathy. Like you're able to get the food that you know, your community and your clients need and want, and not just like, if I have, yeah, those 10 cans of pumpkin, like maybe they don't need those. And you, but you know, like you have the on the ground knowledge. We have the on the ground knowledge of what our clients need and want. And we have the on the ground knowledge of what we're getting into our inventory, right? Mm, If we get a truckload of jasmine rice donated, well, we won't buy a truckload of jasmine rice. We'll buy a truckload of masa instead, Um, which again is something that an individual wouldn't know. Yeah, no, that's super important that, yeah, the, the sensitivity also to what the food bank already has. I think this is this is something I've heard from a couple of folks at food banks that the irony, especially of like donating fresh produce to a food bank is fresh produce, as we all know, is super perishable and also super storage dependent in that like most, I've, I've actually toured the Oregon Food Bank Warehouse and it's a truly impressive facility. It's enormous, but it's interesting in that there, while there's, you know, acres seemingly of uh, dry shelving. There's the, the walk in the area where it's refrigerated is actually remarkably small compared to the overall volume. So if I were to donate, you know, a case of pineapples or whatever, like that might not necessarily be the best use of your time and your space of let's say you already have too many pineapples or you don't even have fridge space. Like maybe your fridge is that capacity. Like I as an individual donor can't know that. Yeah. And yeah, I think the storage part is huge in the same way that like, yeah, if someone came over to your house and brought you a whole raw salmon and suddenly you have to like clear out enough room in your fridge to store a whole salmon, it might actually be more of a burden than a help. It's uh, yeah, I always got to put yourself in someone else's shoes, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think let's get into hunger a bit here because I think like food waste, hunger is a really vexing social problem. It is it is enormous. It's tragic. It's frustrating. And it's seemingly everlasting. You know, despite all these interventions, it's it's always there at some level. And you've spent 24 years uh, addressing hunger. What are some of the root causes of food insecurity? So the single biggest cause of hunger is poverty. And poverty itself has root causes, which are systemic inequities, um, racism, sexism, ableism, which is why we see hunger um, uh, disparately present in communities of color, in immigrant and migrant communities, in the LGBT um, world with single moms. Um, And so... uh, At some level, it's not surprising that 24 years I haven't solved hunger because we're trying to solve poverty and racism, you know, just small problems. (laughs) (laughs) And on the other hand, it is also frustrating that in 24 years I haven't solved hunger and uh, it makes me, uh, it both frustrates me and fuels my fire. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that totally that totally makes sense. You're, you're, you're tackling much bigger things than just hunger in tackling hunger, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I think hunger is a, a relatable way for us to talk about um, poverty and equities because we all need to eat three times a day. And we have all missed a meal for whatever reason and know what happens to you when you miss a meal. You get shaky, it's hard to pay attention, you, ju- you get fo- hyper-focused on when you're going to eat and what it is the next thing that you're going to eat and you can't be um, uh, doing the your work or your schooling or whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. Um, there's a wonderful Chinese uh, proverb that says that a man with food has many problems, a man without food has one. Huh. Um, uh, 
So um, I, one of the things that has kept me in uh, anti-hunger work all of these years is um, that it is, um, it is a way into this much, much bigger conversation about poverty and systemic inequities that we can all relate to um, that, that strips away some of the judgment around why people are in that situation and just goes to, this is what it feels like to be there. And I know what it is because it happened to me last week. I know. I think that's that's super powerful. I mean, what you said, like, just imagining the mind state. You know, anytime we're hungry, we're we're not our best selves, and I think that's like profoundly important to think about. Uh, you know, my, my friend Olympia Osset, who we had on the podcast from uh, Supermarket in LA, talks about how she really wants to pitch this reality TV show where she has people live in a food desert for two weeks to understand what it's actually like to have to drive or take the bus across town to get groceries and just like put yourself in, again, like we talked about earlier, put yourself in that person's shoes. And I think in the same way, we we could all benefit from that thought exercise or or just real life exercise of when you're hungry, imagine having to do a bunch of other stuff. You know, like if you have, if you're hungry and you have to be paying bills and maybe you have to go to a job interview that afternoon, like you're not going to be your, your best top self if you're just focused on that next meal. And so I think similar to, to homelessness is like once you put someone in a, in a house, like you put them in such a stable position to deal with other problems they have. Whereas if they're unhoused and or hungry, it's like you're, you're starting from bad footing to begin with to solve. If you have another problem in your life, that's just, it's, it's a rough, uh, you're, you're not, um, you know, you're not on a firm foundation, I guess I would say. I would agree with that. I would also say that the challenge of the difference between hunger and housing, um, is that it's easier to solve in the short term and harder to solve in the long term, right? Mm. That um, uh, housing is a big single barrier to get over and then hopefully you've got some housing. Whereas we all need three meals a day every day um, um, for the rest of our lives. And so um, you can can, uh, get someone some food to help them through the next three days and then there's <laughs> at the end of the next three days and the problem reoccurs. I also, I, um, USDA put out some data about 10 years ago in which uh, they found that one out of every two Americans will be on SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, at some point in their lives. Whoa. That means 50% of Americans will go through a period of time in their lives when they are worried about feeding themselves or their families or their parents are worried about feeding them if it happens when they're a kid, right? Um, and um, that, that just staggered me, right? That we, we live in a society where the, the vicissitudes of fortune are so big that one out of two Americans will find themselves falling through at some point in their life into a place where they're really insecure economically. Um, and um, uh, and yet that isn't that doesn't become part of our identity. We don't say, oh yeah, you know, I went through those really t- tough years, and so I am a person who has experienced hunger. We don't add that to our list like I am a person who did a uh, uh, a, a semester abroad in Japan, which is true for me, <laughs> and that's part of my identity. But that is not a, a proud thing that we then wear and yeah. take forward to our sense of how we can contribute to society. Um, uh, so I want to say that. I also want to add in the other piece, which is that when you put an equity lens on it and you think about um, uh, just lifting up um, communities of color, for instance, who are much more likely to never go through a period of their life in which they're economically secure because the biggest predictor of whether you're an adult in poverty is whether you are a child in poverty. Um that it's so hard to change class um, uh, conditions in this country right now. Um, So both true that one out of two Americans will find themselves in a place where they need food assistance and true that some Americans with some identities um, because of skin color or sexual orientation or gender or whatever will find it hard to ever be in a place in which food security is their reality. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's a really eye-opening stat. Are there any other kind of misconceptions out there about hunger or how food banks work that you want to clear up? Anything you kind of wish people could understand the way you do? <laughs> um, 
I, I think that it is um, really important to remind people that uh, the food assistance system, food pantries and meal sites are the last defense against hunger. That huh. The first defense against hunger is a good offense, uh, living wage jobs and um, uh, great education systems and access to health care and affordable housing. That these are really the building blocks of um, resilient communities that never go hungry. And if those aren't working, then the next defense against hunger is the the social safety nets, um, uh, SNAP and WIC and school meals, and as we're seeing the importance of unemployment right now during um, this pandemic, uh, that these are the next um, steps and that the food assistance sites are the last, um, the last stop for folks um, uh, to try and make sure that their, their bellies are full and their tables um, have food on them at night. Uh, and I think that, that in some ways, there are many Americans who have that turned around in their heads, mm. um, uh, uh, the importance uh, and, and the scale and the scope. So just for instance, here in Oregon, for before pandemic, pre-pandemic times, um, for every meal that we provided throughout uh, the 36 counties of Oregon and, and Clark County, Washington, SNAP benefits provided 12. So it's 12 times larger than we are. And that doesn't even start to count school meals, um, which when school is operating is providing 10 out of 21 meals to many, many school children each week, right? Um, yeah. uh, so um, I think that, that the charitable response to hunger is visible and we need community support, so we have to be visible. But that that gives it an oversized place in people's minds as to how important it is. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, another thing that um, uh, uh, that I would, um, I'd love for people to understand, I think, around um, food banking is that we shouldn't exist, right? The fact that the food bank system exists means our society is broken, means that we are letting people all the way through the cracks down to a food pantry system. And so while I am so grateful to um, be able to help my neighbors and friends who are struggling with food assistance, I also know that I am a symptom of a problem and I will be the happiest person in the universe when we can shut down the food bank and say, no, we've solved the problem by ensuring that people never end up hungry in the first place. Yeah, no, that's really well said. I've, I've talked to a couple of folks, both at Oregon Food Bank and near where I live at the Alameda County Community Food Bank that said exactly that, that their goal is not to just be working at a food bank forever. They would love a system where they could kind of at least reduce the scale, if not disappear entirely and, yeah. and move on to a different problem in our society. Um, and I've heard maybe this is a rumor, but can you, can you share that? I've heard that the Oregon Food Bank's logo actually indicates that, that there's this kind of sloping line that indicates <laughs> that perhaps one day the, the food bank will no longer be needed along the bottom of the logo. Is that true? That is true. Um, we redesigned the logo four or five years ago, um, and it is uh, the words Oregon um, uh, inside a, a plant. So leaves on the top and roots at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and then the word food bank getting small, sloping and getting smaller into the future. Um, and for me, it means a couple things. One is this idea that we, we're moving, that we're part of a movement and we're yeah. moving and that hopefully we're moving in a direction where a food bank doesn't exist. Yeah. And then it also represents the food, but it also represents the roots, the root causes of hunger and the fact that our particular mission is to eliminate hunger and its root causes. So we are really, as an organization, about both meeting the need for food assistance today and figuring out how to put ourselves out of business. Amazing. And, you know, uh, something I thought that was really interesting, uh, I was talking to one of your colleagues at one point, and they, they were saying that basically, something that's really eye opening about working at a food bank is you kind of see where all the gaps are in the food system, because a lot of the people like you mentioned, the milk example, the people that come to you with excess food are in many ways telling you where the waste is happening in our supply chain. So can you share a bit about what's the relationship between food waste and hunger in the US and kind of where do you in your 
your work work to kind of close this gap? Like what, what gaps are you seeing and how are you working to redirect that food? Oh, that is such an interesting question. Um, it makes me think of the story about how food banking got started, which was 1967 in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, there was a man named John Van Hengel who was uh, running a food pantry, and he got to talking with a woman in, in line for their food pantry, and she said that she had two primary sources of food. One was the, his food pantry, and the other one was the dumpster behind the local grocery store. Hmm. And he said, wait, what? There's good food being thrown away. And he went and checked it out. And very quickly, um, he had a supply of food that was much larger than any one food pantry could handle. Wow. Right. And thus the first food bank was born, that they needed a warehouse to collect that edible but non-saleable food from the food industry and get it out to the multitude of food pantries and meal sites um, that existed then and are even larger um, now, 50 years later. Um, uh, and um, and so food banking from its core, um, from that origin story, was about connecting excess food to people who needed food. There is another origin story of food banking that is the Black Panthers. Um, so in the, the late 60s, early 70s, um, uh, the Black Panther movement, Black Power movement, um, was a political party, of course, but they were also providing social services. And at the height of the Black Panther movement, they had um, dozens of breakfast programs going in low-income neighborhoods across this country. And um, uh, uh, there's evidence that that um, work of the Black Panther Party and starting the breakfast programs led to breakfast being offered at schools and led to the sort of formalization of the food banking programs across the state, across the country, because they were shining a spotlight on kids needing more food assistance and these two um, two origin stories joined into the food banking movement as we, we know it today. Um, uh, so yes, there we have in our, our beginnings a sense of food banking identifying where is the excess in the food industry and um, trying to connect it on the one hand. And on the other hand, starting with a a, a social justice mandate, a community-centric mandate, a this is not right, we don't want to live in a society where this is the case mandate. And I think we've been living with those tensions ever since, right? On the one hand, you don't want the food to go to waste. But on the other hand, the point of um, serving our communities is not really about food waste. It's really about justice. Mm. Um, uh, and so never wanting to get just pigeonholed into a, a logistical solution um, uh, to, um, to fighting hunger. Uh, so yes, I'll also tell you another story. Um, when I, I came to Oregon Food Bank seven and a half years ago, now I was running the Food Bank of Alaska for 12 years ahead of that. That's an interesting story. Um, <laughs> And um, uh, uh, when I got here, I was a, a little surprised to find that Oregon Food Bank was not taking um, a large advantage of the fact that we are an agricultural state. Hmm. Oregon grows 250 different commercial crops. Um, and we hadn't changed our systems to um, uh, accept large quantities of fresh produce and the, the storage challenges that, that all that encompasses um, and to get that food distributed. So we started leaning in to, uh, to bringing in more produce as one of our big strategic priorities. And we started with potatoes because every culture eats potatoes. We grow a lot of potatoes in Oregon and Idaho. Yep. Um, they're they're reasonably shelf stable provided they're stored at a decent temperature and moisture. Um, uh, and so um, uh, we started with potatoes and I thought, okay, well, we'll need a truckload of potatoes a week. That means we need 52 truckloads of potatoes. I'm thinking, ah, that probably means we need 30 donors. We started the outreach, and within weeks, we had three donors that could provide us those 52 truckloads of potatoes. What? There is so much excess in the, um, at the production level uh, because there's so much emphasis on the, um, shall we call it the aesthetics yeah. of the food, um, particularly for the grocery store channel. Yeah. Um, 
so we were getting the two bigs, two smalls, two funny lookings. Um, uh, and there was so much excess of the two bigs, two smalls, two funny lookings that the growers had to grow lots and lots of potatoes in order to have sufficient potatoes that were the right size, right shape, um, right aesthetics for the retail industry. Whereas this, all this other food that was just as nutritious and just as um, uh, uh, shelf stable, right? Nothing, nothing fundamentally wrong with that food other than it didn't look right. Yeah. Um, uh, and as we've expanded from potatoes to onions, to apples, to pears, that is just proven to be true in nearly every crop that there are, there is, um, excess. And then that's just in the way it looks, but there also are very, um, uh, big swings in how crops grow given a particular year, what the rain was like, what the sun was like, what the <laughs> snowpack was like. Um, uh, um, all of these things determine whether the crop is 50% of average or 150% of average, and the markets don't change that much, right? Yeah. So they can have years in which there's almost nothing that's excess, and they can have years in which they're just, they're plowing food back under because they, the they can't sell it. Um, um, and so just in our growing system, we end up with um, uh, tons and tons of, of excess food. Um, and uh, food banking is adapting, and Oregon Food Bank is adapting to be able to, to, to get that food. And it's just, it's so fascinating to watch. Um, and it's crop by crop, right? We're watching right now the apple industry slowly transform to hydro kind of hydroponic, um, uh, different kinds of growing, um, irrigated growing um, uh, rows, um, uh, expaliated rows of trees instead of the traditional orchards with different trees um, because it's so much easier to pick um, in that way. But it takes years and years for those trees to grow. So these market changes happen over decades. Um, uh, uh, and that's again one crop. So anyway, it's um, for me as the, the granddaughter of uh, orchardists. It's been really fun to be part of, uh, to be at one far end of the agricultural food chain and be watching um, uh, the trends and the challenges of our colleagues who are growers and producers. No, that, that's super interesting. And I, I definitely relate to what you're talking about. You know, Imperfect got its start for the same reason that we we heard, our founders had heard how, truly the the volume of food out there that was going to waste and getting tilled under and left in fields was was enormous. And it, it staggers me to this day how big it is. And every, every time I think we've sourced a decent amount of produce, I learn how much is still getting left in fields. And so I think, yeah, that's, it's just, it's really powerful. Like what you're talking about that you thought, you know, you'd need a bunch of growers to get you your potato quota and then three had enough surplus to get it. And they just showed up and assuming, you know, presumably before you came along, they were, they didn't know what to do with it. They had no outcome for it. Right. Yes, exactly. It was getting plowed back under, which is not a terrible thing, right? Yeah, it puts it's nutrients the the back in the soil. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but, it, but when we've got folks over here who could use that food, um, we want to do that as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the, the EPA's food recovery hierarchy is like always something that's worth keeping top of mind. You know, the t t top, top outcome is like don't produce more than you can realistically use. And I think that goes for all of us at home too, right? Don't buy more than you can realistically eat. But below yeah. that is, is feed hungry people. Like find a way to use the food to feed people. Feeding the soil is an outcome, but it's actually almost it's the second to the bottom one. But below, you know, you don't want to incinerate food. That's the worst yeah. case. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's super powerful. They just, there is, there's such a huge surplus out there and uh, yeah, there's just, there's still a lot more work to be done. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, in Oregon is, is there, is there more food going to waste on farms than you can take in? Like, do you feel like you're taking in a, a sizable chunk of the surplus out there or is there still more that you cannot accept? Oh, there is uh, we do not have a food supply problem. In, okay. the, in the in this country or yeah. possibly in the entire world right the problem is not about supply the problem yeah. is about access um you know food banking like the story i told about john van hengel really grew up um to take uh shelf stable food um 
And so we are all changing our systems to handle this fresh produce, which means I need more cooler space and mm. more trucks for rapid delivery. And the regional food banks need that. And the, um, uh, each of our 1,400 food assistance sites need that. Yeah. Um, and people experiencing hunger need to be able to count on and um, reliably receive fresh produce from their local food assistance site. So we are five years into that transformation, and we've gone from ooh, a 10% fresh produce to 40% fresh produce. Um, uh, but there's at least tens of millions, it could be hundreds of millions of pounds of additional produce just in Oregon and um, the Pacific Northwest alone. There will be, we will top out by crops, right? I mean, mm. you can only eat so many onions. Um, <laughs> Very true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, human being in anyone, any one person can only eat so many onions and you can even only eat so many apples, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, so the variety will end up being um, a, a limiting factor for us. But right yeah. now, quantity isn't even remotely a limiting factor. Yeah, uh, that's super interesting. And yeah, that echoes the stuff I've heard from other food banks as well, that the reality is there's more out there right now than they can take in. And that goes for Imperfect too. Like there's a lot of stuff. We have people coming to us trying to provide us food. And, you know, we try to build that relationship and make it happen when we can. But a lot of times we say like, hey, like we don't quite have the capacity or we can't quite take that yet. Or it's not, we can't get it to us. Because you know, like the shipping, like you talked about, is part of the trouble too. It's uh, the logistics of food are remarkably complicated. And I think it's easy to think like, because there is surplus, we should be able to just snap our fingers. You know, it's the 21st century. We should be able to snap our fingers and the food should go to where hungry people are or where grocery shoppers are. But unfortunately, that's not quite how food works. And like a lot of us, like both of us are working in different ways to find a way to route excess food. And yet there is still more, which is kind of the conundrum of it all. Yeah. And I mean, I, th I think your point about apples and pears and onions was interesting too, in that it, it seems analogous to what you started with that... Uh, you know, you have to think about what constitutes a meal. And also, so like if a, a pear grower just wants to give you all of their excess pears, like that's amazing, but people cannot live on pears alone, just like people couldn't live on canned pumpkin or even just pasta. Like you need a well-rounded diet. So on some level, like even just the donated produce is, is amazing, but it is a piece of the overall dietary pie. Like with without the pasta and the beans and the rice and the masa, you know, you, you're not just going to feed people with pears or onions or whatever. Like it's got to be a kind of all of the above solution, it sounds like. That's a really good point. And it leads me to thinking about another logistical challenge for us. So Oregon grows a lot of the nation's pears. Um, uh, and um, when there is a really, really strong pear year, when the growing conditions have been right for a really strong pear year, there are a lot more pears than hungry people in Oregon can eat. Yeah. Um, right. And so either that food can um, uh, go to waste or get juiced um, or go to imperfect produce, um, or uh, um, we can get it to other food banks around the country. Yeah. And so we started a collaboration with the two food banks in um, uh, Washington State, Seattle and Spokane, and the food bank in Boise, the Idaho Food Bank. The four of us in the Pacific Northwest um, started a collaboration to scoop up excess food that that was more than any one of us could use, make sure that all of our needs were taken care of, and then get the rest of it out to food banks around the country. And so it, I'm thinking of three years ago when there was a really big pear harvest. Um, uh, I think we shipped 8 million pounds of pears out of Oregon into food banks across the rest of the country. Wow. Um, right? Um, uh, and And who would even think that there would be such a thing as that much excess pears? Right. Yeah. It's you, people don't even think about these surpluses because to the consumer, they're not there, right? You, you see pears in the market and that's where they are. You don't think about the pears that aren't in the market because you're not seeing them. It's just yep. like, yeah, mind blowing. It's crazy. I mean, what a cool program though. I mean, again, I think a lot of us are, are seeing these bare shelves and then there's these interesting thought pieces coming out now during COVID that are saying, it's not that there's not enough food, it's just in the wrong places. You know, there are a bunch of avocados that used to go to cruise ships and now there's no cruise ships out on the sea. So we need to reroute the avocados. There were a bunch of eggs that used to go to restaurants. We need to literally create more egg cartons so that we can get them into grocery stores. Like there's a whole, whole new supply chains need to be created if you intend to reroute food that used to go somewhere else or used to go to waste even. And I think yeah. 
that's like the challenge and the opportunity we're both facing is like, how do we build that almost like the railroad track that doesn't yet exist so that a train can make a turn it didn't used to make, you know? And, and the weird things that come up, like egg cartons you were just mentioning, or we are hearing here in Oregon, our schools are shut down um, due to the pandemic, um, but many, if not most, school districts are still providing to-go meals yep. um, for kids, and they are running out of paper bags and plastic baggies because they didn't stock up for to-go meals, right? They thought they were going to go on trays that they yeah. could wash. Um, and so they're they're finding themselves challenged to continue providing these meals, not because of the food, but because of the associated food supplies. Yeah. Um, no, truly, truly mind, mind blowing. I mean, we, we started sending our, uh, use delivery boxes to Oregon Food Bank for that exact reason that our, our we had learned that food banks like yourself were having to spend thousands of dollars buying pristine cardboard boxes when ironically there were perfectly good lightly used boxes that could be serving that role and you know unfortunately we've had to pause the program for now due to COVID you know just being extra careful but I think there's so many examples of that out there where there is a, a way uh, to make like a good philanthropic outcome happen but you do kind of have to check the boxes of all the associated logistics which is like rarely the the sexy part that people want you know it feels much better like you said earlier to just give food but giving you know money or even helping them get the transportation or the boxes or the trucks that they need is actually like maybe the the more impactful gift you know i'd, I'd love to close just maybe this is too big of a question to close with but you know where do you hope to see uh hunger relief go in the u.s like what do you hope the the future holds you mean aside from putting myself out of business? So somewhere between between here and there. Um, the, the thing that I'm most excited about in um, uh, food banking right now is being able to leverage the, um, the incredible um, reach of um, people that food banking involves, right? So in pre-pandemic times, Oregon Food Bank and our, our broader network were serving 860,000 Oregonians a year. Yeah. And uh, several hundred more thousand Oregonians were volunteering in um, food banks, regional food banks, or food pantries across the state. That's one in four Oregonians who is somehow connected into the food assistance system. That's a movement. Um, so I am really excited about trying to um, take that, that movement that we've built, those communities that we've built around trying to solve today's problem of um, getting enough food to, to someone for their meals today, and um, turn that into people power for, ch for changing the structural issues that um, lead to hunger in the first place. Yeah. That is access to healthcare or affordable housing. Um, I'm so excited about what we call a new leadership, about putting people who have experienced hunger in the center of driving where the anti-hunger movement should go. Yeah. No, that's that's super well said, and I love the note you you touched on that it's holistic. That ultimately, uh, problems in access to healthcare or housing are also end up touching hunger. That that you can't just address one in isolation. Like they're all influencing each other, and if you start to solve one, it will very likely start to solve the other ones as well. You know, with the um, no food bank in the country advocated for the Affordable Care Act, including the Food Bank of Alaska, which I was running at the time, because mm. that was healthcare. Right, um, but if you ask me, what is the single biggest um, impact that a piece of public policy has had to drive down hunger in the last decade? I would say the Affordable Care Act, huh. because um, we, uh, before the Affordable Care Act, um, we saw so many people say they were standing in a food pantry line because they didn't have access to health care, and after the Affordable Care. Um, Care Act, those numbers were cut in half um, of the people who identified healthcare as the reason that they needed food assistance. Um, so yes, we 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 fixed the 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 stream upstream, and it will impact whether or not people are able to feed themselves and their families today. Yeah. Oh, that's that's it's super amazing, super well said. Uh, I'd love to close with my traditional closer questions. It's kind of a fun speed round. You ready to get into it? Go for it. Okay. Um, the first one is, is there anything you'd encourage folks listening to follow up with or kind of explore in more depth on their own time? Uh, so 
I was thinking that people should read Janet Poppendick's book, uh, Breadlines Knee Deep in Wheat, which is about the 1930s depression and how much of our current agricultural policy got founded. So if you're of an academic bent, go read that. Great. Amazing book recommendation. Uh, I'm always on the lookout for good food books too. So I'll, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> going to read that as well. Uh, if you're cooking or sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. Um, what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks listening should try? Ooh, uh, since the uh, pandemic started, I've been biking to work. It's only four miles for me, and it wasn't possible before because I was doing a lot of shuffling of my kids. But with my kids being at home all the time, I can actually bike to and from work, and I am adoring it. And so I would say, if you haven't ever done it, give it a try. I love it. I used to have a bike commute and echo that. It's it's one of the best ways. Uh, it's it's so nice, really. And good exercise, too. It's like this exercise you don't even realize you're getting. Yep. Super cool. Um, if you're cooking for somebody and want to make you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? Mm, I love making massive Indian meals. I love making a big lamb curry and a cauliflower dish and a rice dish and making naan and raita and chutney. I pull out all the stops. Amazing. Sounds so good. When's dinner? <laughs> what, what ingredient could you not live without? Cumin. Mm. Awesome. That might be my favorite spice, actually. So cool. Uh, what is your least favorite thing to waste? Ooh, um, I, am, I am the person in my house who makes sure that anything that I cook, all the leftovers are eaten, even if it's for breakfast. Yep. Amazing. And what is your go-to karaoke or sing aloud in the car slash kitchen washing dishes song? <laughs> Rocket Man by Elton John. Oh, that's a classic. That's a great one. That one has never gotten old for me. I think it was a couple like that and Tiny Dancer. I feel like Elton John just like, yeah, oh, so good. Um, who is somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? Uh I really admire the current CEO of Feeding America, Claire Babano Fontenot. Um, Claire grew up uh, as a granddaughter of sharecroppers in southern Louisiana with no money um, and worked her way up the corporate ladder into now leading our anti-hunger movement. She is a, a woman of color um, with incredible moral courage. Awesome. What a great individual. Sounds like an awesome role model out there. Uh, and finally, what are you grateful for this week? I am grateful for the fact that um, I woke up to my son hugging me this week. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. What a heartwarming note to end on. Wow. Susanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about the work that you do? OregonFoodBank.org. Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in our show notes, as well as on our website, unwastedpodcast.com. If you're listening, have any questions or comments, just shoot us an email at feedback at unwastedpodcast.com. Susanna Morgan, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure. My pleasure.